Now, I, I want to start by asking um, a question. If, if I asked you who the most influential Christian of the 20th century uh, was, who, who would you say? Um, Billy Graham. Um, I, and I'd, I'd agree with that. He would be definitely up there. Uh, uh, we heard a lot about Billy Graham recently. And it, it's, it's hard to fathom how far his reach extends because um, he preached the gospel. I, I saw these statistics that came out just recently after his death. He preached the gospel to 215 million people. Uh, different people at his crusades, his rallies, his missions around the world. Somebody was telling me recently that they actually became a Christian at one of his rallies. And so it was kind of hard to measure how far Billy Graham's impact uh, goes. Now, if I were to ask you who the most influential Christian of the 16th century was, I'm not guessing many of us would be like, ah, I know who, but um, you may have heard of the name Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German theologian and he's credited with kind of uh, starting the Protestant Reformation. And, and what really happened there was that, that the faith was kind of put back into the hands of the people that he took and he re-emphasized salvation and all these things that it's by grace through faith that we're saved. Not only did he do that, but he took um, the Bible, which was only in Latin, and he translated it into German and then from that, many other uh, languages had the Bible translated into their own language. Um, he also had a huge impact on, on singing within the Protestant church. You might not know this, but um, Martin Luther wrote hymns. And his hymns would have been uh, quite popular probably with the people of the day because he simply took bar songs and put Christian lyrics to them. And so they would have been kind of culturally uh, appealing. Now, what about, uh, what about the first century? Uh, that one might be a bit easier. We might say, well, one of the apostles, probably the apostle Paul. I mean, if you talk about somebody who has an amazing testimony, the apostle Paul is one of these guys, like guy who's killing Christians, then he becomes a church planter. He becomes this mentor to so many young men in the faith, um, bringing people to Christ, writing like chunks of the, the New Testament and the Bible. And so it, it's hard to imagine what Christianity would be without the Apostle Paul. Now, we could look at um, these guys, and we could look at countless other people, and ask this question, who are amongst the greats when it, when it comes to Christianity? We could even ask, who, who is the greatest? Now, I'm, I'm guessing not too many of us are going to say, well, I'm up there on that list somewhere, because we, we'd look at other people and go, man, they have had huge impact for the kingdom of God. But, but, we, we might ask this question, who are amongst the greats? And so that's kind of the question we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 20. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to start in verse 20. Um, and it, it just starts this way. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, so Zebedee's sons are the apostles James and John, came to ask Jesus, or came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And so this mother wants what's best for her, her sons, as most mothers do. You, you have big hopes and dreams for your children. Now, what she's asking Jesus is um, for her sons to be at the left and the right of Jesus. Essentially, she's saying, Jesus, in your new kingdom, what I want is for either James or John to be the vice president or the secretary of state in your new cabinet when your kingdom comes. And so we might go, where does she get this 
idea. Well, it's not really something she just dreamt up randomly one day. In Matthew chapter 19, um, you, you see Jesus is talking about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's, it's so hard, in fact, that it's actually easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the conversation progresses a little bit more. But then in verse 27, Peter says this, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? In other words, Peter is saying, Jesus, we have gone all in. We have held nothing back. So what, what, what are we going to get from this? And in verse 28, Jesus replies, When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so you can imagine at this moment that the ears of the disciples kind of perk up because Jesus is saying, you're going to have a throne in my kingdom. And a throne is the sign of authority and power. Kings and rulers sit on thrones. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're going to be rulers in my kingdom. And that, that sounds pretty good. But here's the thing. These disciples will be like, ah, oh, yeah, thrones. This is going to be awesome. But then they start to go, where is my throne going to be in relation to the king's throne? Where will my throne kind of be in relation to Jesus' throne? Because the closer your throne is to the king, the more important, the more powerful you are seen as. You are seen as greater. And so you kind of want your throne to be as close as possible to the king's throne. Now, we're kind of building up to where she asked the question in verse 17 of Matthew 20. It says this, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And so Jesus is heading for Jerusalem and he's heading to the city of the king and he doesn't hold back what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. He's, he's, Brutally honest. He says, I'm going to be arrested by the Jewish leaders. I'm going to be mocked and beaten and crucified. They're going to kill me. But, but it doesn't end there. He says, on the third day, I will be raised to life. Now, after Jesus says this, this is when uh, their mother, her name is Salome, um, comes and makes this request. And it seems like really poor timing given what Jesus is just like. I'm going to be treated brutal at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And they're like, ah, oh, well, where are our thrones going to be? It seems like a bad timing, but they probably make this request at this time because they're going, we're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. We better get our requests in before it's too late. Now, in Mark's account of this event in his gospel, you'll find it in Mark chapter 10. It actually has James and John making the request themselves. You don't see mention of the mother. And, and Mark probably phrases it this way because it's, it's more so James and John putting their mother up to asking Jesus for this favor. They want it for themselves. Um, while she wants what, what is best for her boys, they, they really want it for themselves. And so they're trying to bring their mother in on this. And so they know their best chance may why with her asking Jesus on their behalf. Now, scholars have some different thinking as to why this may be. Um, one, it looks a lot less selfish of James and John to, to do it this way. Like if somebody comes and says, you know what, uh, 
Jesus, I think uh, these two guys are going to make great rulers in your kingdom. You should, should give them positions of authority and power. They could go, well, I mean, we weren't even thinking about it, but now that you mention it, that might not be such a bad idea. Um, it's also believed that uh, their mother, Salome, was a relative of Jesus's mother, Mary. And so they're going, well, Jesus might be more inclined, um, might want to say yes to an older relative than saying yes to, to James and John. And finally, um, some say that their mother, Salome, was financially supporting Jesus's earthly ministry. And so um, he might be more inclined to say yes to somebody who's, who's financially supporting him going about. This might be their reasons for getting their mother to ask so Salome comes and she says, I want you to do me a favor. Now Mark chapter 10, verse 35, um, it has James and John saying it this way. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Essentially, we're going to ask you a favor, but before we tell you what that favor is, we want a yes. Now if somebody ever comes to you and says, I, I want you to do something for, my, for me, but before I'm going to tell you what that is, I want you to, to say you'll do it. Um, that's probably not going to be a great request following that. Think of it, maybe somebody's come to you and said like, um, I'm going to tell you something, um, but before I tell you, promise not that, to get mad. Like that, that's never a good way to intro um, what's going to come afterwards. And so James and John, they, they probably go about this way because they're going, they, they might know their request isn't all that proper. They might even fear rejection, but their thinking is, you know what, if we can get a promise of a yes from Jesus before we actually state what it is, he can't take it back. So this might be their thinking. Now, Jesus doesn't promise them anything. He simply asks, what do you want? Now, Jesus knows what they want, um, but he might want them to say it out loud so they can hear their own words of ambition, um, that they can hear what they're wanting. And this is their opportunity to kind of go, you know what, um, never mind, Jesus, like to reconsider what they're asking, realizing it's not that great of a request, but they don't do that. They, they go ahead and they say, we want the thrones at the left and the right of you in heaven, the seats with the highest honor, authority, and power in your kingdom. Now they, they think about Jesus' kingdom and they, they imagine he's going to be this political messiah, um, sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. It's going to be like um, every other earthly kingdom they've seen, where, where there's the king and his top guys who are calling all the shots. And so they don't understand um, the, the spiritual and the eternal implications to Jesus' kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, this is how Jesus responds to them. You don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So as I said, James and John, they think Jesus is going up to, to Jerusalem to claim his throne, and if necessary, he'll exercise his authority and power as the Messiah to make it happen. And so when he says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? What they hear is, are you willing to fight alongside of me to make this kingdom a reality? Are you willing to go up and take and make this, this kingdom happen by force if, if it comes to that? And they go, we sure can. Now Jesus is talking about something completely different. 
Um, in the Old Testament, the cup was, was symbolic of either joy or suffering and sorrow. And Jesus is speaking of the latter, a cup of suffering and sorrow. It, it is the cup filled with God's wrath. In Psalm chapter 75, verse 8, it says, You hold in your hand a cup filled with wine, strong and foaming. You will pour out some for every sinful person on this earth, and they will have to drink it until it is gone. And so Jesus said, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And, and what he's saying is, I'm going up to drink the cup of God's wrath, God's anger towards sin, sins that are, are heinous crimes, sin of idolatry, sin of adultery, careless words, dishonoring thoughts, lies. All the sins that are, that are available are going to be punished by God. It's a cup of suffering and sorrow that Jesus is going to drink in Jerusalem. It's a cup of God's wrath, and in drinking the cup, Jesus atones for sin. Now, James and John, Jesus says, you're going to drink a cup too. But it's, it's not the cup of God's wrath, but it is like Jesus's in that it's a cup of sorrow and suffering. And if you do a quick um, study of, of church history, you're going to find that almost every apostle, every um, disciple of Jesus, those amongst those 12, suffered and are, or were murdered, uh, martyred, sorry, for the, the cause of Jesus's kingdom. But in regards to the seating arrangement in heaven, Jesus goes, that's, that's not up to me. That's up to my father. He decides where people will be sitting. Now, you get the idea that James, John, and their mother um, have this conversation out of the earshot of the rest of the disciples, based off verse 24. It says, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So when the, the other disciples hear about the request they've made of Jesus, they get upset with the rest, or James and John. And they're probably not upset because James and John have asked for these thrones closest to Jesus. They're not upset that they think that their quest is um, immoral or wrong. They're upset that James and John have beaten them to the punch. Um, they're, they're upset that they might have tried to use their, their connections and a few other things to, to gain an advantage at, to those thrones. But they're, they're, they would gladly take those thrones next to Jesus if possible. And so you can imagine, um, and if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that every once in a while the disciples would get into this argument as to who was the greatest amongst them. And you get this idea that this argument, something like it breaks out here. Um, about who's the greatest, who most deserves to sit to the left and right of Jesus. And I imagine these guys have spent three years together. They probably fight like brothers. Um, they, they probably just don't really hold much back. And so Peter might go, you guys, I, I think I'm the most deserving to sit at Jesus' right because you know what? Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of the leader amongst us. I'm the first to step out. I'm the first to say things when Jesus asks a question. And like, they, he could go, remember, remember that time we were on the water and, and Jesus comes walking out towards us? I was the one who stepped out of the boat and started walking towards him. He could go, you know what? Um, I was the first one to confess him as the Messiah. Now, the disciples could go, yeah, that's true, but you kind of are leaving things out. Um, remember when he stepped out of the boat? You took a few steps and then you, you began to drown and call out for help, Peter. Like, that wasn't that great. Um, remember when you confessed Jesus as the Messiah, well, like a few minutes later, he turns around and he calls you Satan. Like, you're not that great, Peter. 
Now, James and John, they could stake their claim. They could go, well, we're amongst the inner circle, the inner three of Jesus. Um, John could even say, I'm pretty sure Jesus loves me the most. But again, the guys could go, well, get off your high horse. You're not as good as you think you are. Remember that time Jesus rebuked you for wanting to call down fire from heaven on that Samaritan village? And Jesus is like, no, we, we don't do things that way. And so you, you can imagine that the, tw- the 12 disciples, they're arguing, they're debating as to who is the greatest. And Jesus sees that his disciples are doing this. And so in verse 25, he calls them together and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of the world, in kingdoms of the world, those who many would consider uh, great, they throw their weight around. A, a little bit of power can quickly go to their head. They exercise power and authority over those below them. They tell them what to do, that they have to do whatever they say. And so we, we could say that the kingdoms of the world, the, the hierarchy, it often looks something like this. You have the guy at the top and people who are closer to the top and more and more in authority and those at the bottom don't have much authority. They have to do what is said. Now, most people desire to be closer to the top in your, your social circles or whatever hierarchy you might exist in, your, your organizational chart at work. And the reason we believe is that the closer you are to the top, the better life tends to be. Um, James and John believe this. This is why they're asking for these two thrones. That the closer you are to the top, the more power you wield over others. And if you can demand service from people, I mean, in our culture, we would say, you have made it. If you can demand service from other people. The title we have, our position in the organizational chart, how many people we have authority over, um, our markers of success within our culture. Like, what happens if, if two pastors meet? Um, something that happens within the first like 10 minutes, I can almost guarantee, is one of them is going to go, How big's your congregation? And the reason they're asking is because they want to know how, how big is it? Like, the bigger the congregation, the better you are, or something like that. That's the kind of things we exist that exist within even the church. And so let's be honest most of us, we would rather be up, up here than down here. Um, in our homes, in our social circles, in our workplaces, things like that. Nobody goes, you know what? I really, really aspire to get to the bottom. Like, I really want to be the low man on the totem pole. I've never heard anybody say anything like that. And so again, in, in our world, the higher you are in the structure, the more powerful, successful, valuable you might be considered. And importance can often be represented by the number of people below you. And so because of this, leadership is a huge thing in our culture right now. Um, I did a simple search on Amazon.ca on the books section, and I typed in leadership. There are over 100,000 books available on leadership on Amazon.ca alone. And here's the thing. Um, You can earn your way to the top through hard work, honesty, integrity, and and you you can get there. It, It is possible. But Jesus makes a good point. Often the people at the top, they lord it over those below them. Um, they, they tell them what to do. It can quickly go to their head. And so um, we, we like authority over other people. And so we'll often do whatever it takes and, uh, to get there and to stay at the top. 
And so we can be born into power, we can buy power, we can bully our way into power, um, all these things. And Jesus knows that not everybody who's gotten to these positions of authority and power have done it in a righteous way. That not everybody who does this are exercising their authority over others in a good way. And people often get hurt, they get stepped on, they get kind of forgotten and ignored by the people who are above them as they try and um, achieve greatness in the eyes of the world. And Jesus understood the human sin nature. Um, Every one of us desires to be considered great or better than everybody around us. Um, Most of us want the applause, we want the approval, um, we want to be served. Now, Proverbs chapter 16, 18, it says, too much pride will destroy you. And if, if we really look at it, we're going to see that pride is often at the root of almost every human conflict or crisis. Um, that if you look at almost any family, local, national, or international um, struggle that there's going on, that pride at some point is usually a part of it, if not at its very core um, and, and so pride, it causes a lot of issues in earthly kingdoms. Uh, pride says, I'm most important. I'm more important than other people. And so Jesus, Jesus hears his disciples, they're arguing about um, who's most important, who, who deserves the greatest honor. And in verse 27, or sorry, verse 26, he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, sorry, wants to become great among you, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And so the values of God's kingdom are different than the values of the world's. Um, The world says do whatever it takes to get to the top and to stay there. Um, And when you can exercise your your power and your authority over other people, then you can say, I've arrived. Um, I'm I'm a value. I'm, I'm important. But what Jesus does, and Greg talked about this last week, is that he turns things upside down. He changes the way we look at everything. And he's not saying that it's, it's wrong for a Christian to desire to be great in the kingdom of God, but what he does is he redefines what greatness looks like in his kingdom. That if a Christian desires to be great, um, they're going to serve many people. That if a Christian desires to be the, the first amongst all, the best, they're actually going to make themselves a slave to everyone that they can. And, and here's what we find, that if you want to rise up high in the kingdom of God, you actually have to um, bend lower in service, give of yourself. What Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom of God, greatness actually descends to serve other people. Now, being a slave or a servant in Jewish society is it's not something most people desire. It was one of the lowest possible positions. And I don't think that word really appeals to us today. Um, I I said there's over 100,000 books written on leadership available on Amazon.ca. If you type servanthood into Amazon.ca books, you'll find there's only 165 books available on that topic. And so we all want to lead. We all want to have authority over others. Not many of us are really wanting to serve Um, But Jesus is saying, servants have the greatest influence, impact, authority in the kingdom of God. Um, Servanthood doesn't usually go hand in hand with power and authority and prestige. 
But Jesus is saying, slaves and servants are amongst the greatest. And so in the kingdom of God, greatness is not measured by how many people serve you, but how many people you serve. Now, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so every Christian has been given spiritual gifts, um, and they're, they're meant to be used to serve in the church. But your willingness to serve others more so than your gifts shows your spiritual maturity. Um, greatness in the kingdom is it's measured by the amount of people are ser- we serve, not by our gifts or talents. Now, that, that's good news, because what Jesus is saying is that anybody can be great in his kingdom. It doesn't take a special gift or a talent to pick up trash, um, to to stack tables, to stack chairs, to, to cook a meal for somebody, to give somebody a drive, to help somebody move, um, to meet some sort of need. You don't need a special gift or talent to do that. If you see somebody um, walking along, they trip, they get hurt, they sprain their ankle, you're able to serve them. You don't walk up to them and go, man, I'm sorry, I just don't have the gift of mercy, you're on your own, um, good luck. No, God expects you to serve that person in that time. If somebody... Um, is sick. God, God doesn't require a special gift or talent to, to, to cook a meal for them, to cut their grass, these type things. And so Christians, we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve in particular ways, and we should serve where we're gifted. But at the same time, God will often test our hearts by asking us to serve in areas we're not necessarily gifted in, or areas we're not necessarily passionate about, because how we respond to those needs that we see reveals who we love the most. And so I want to ask, how are you doing with those tests that God puts in your path? Um, who, who are you serving? Now, if none of this makes sense to you, um, if what Jesus is saying here is kind of actually feels like an awful idea, I think it's an indicator of something. Um, we could look at what Jesus says here about, about servanthood, and we can go, well, if I'm going lower to serve others, how am I supposed to build up and achieve things within my life and, and accomplish my hopes, dreams, and aspirations? And we can rephrase it this way. If I'm going out of my way to serve other people, how am I going to build up my own kingdom? And the answer pretty much is you can't. It's impossible. And that's, that's kind of the point. Um, and if you're a disciple, the, the goal is not to, to build up your own earthly kingdom and have this great life for yourself while, while waiting for Jesus to return and usher in his kingdom in its, its fullness. That's, that's not the point. We ask this question, whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your own kingdom here on earth or are you building up the kingdom of God? And you look at the end results of them. One goes back in the box, it turns into dust, and one is eternal. One actually matters. And so as disciples, our our mission is to make more disciples, to bring more people into the kingdom of God. We get no indication that we're to be building up our own kingdoms here. In John chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says this, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And so in the big picture, what Jesus is talking about is not where your throne is going to be in relation to his in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is talking about is influence. 
impact, how to affect somebody's life. Um, that those who serve others, those who make themselves a slaves to other people, they actually have more influence, impact, and effect in the lives of other people. And, and you might not be going, well, I, you might not aspire to an official leadership position within the church. And I, in first service, I kind of said this, is like, I know this because when we ask somebody to lead a ministry, we get a lot of no thank yous, try somebody else. That, that happens. And while you might not desire that official leadership position, um, I imagine there's somebody's life you want to impact. There's somebody you want to see be saved. You want to lead them to salvation. And here's the thing you've no- you might have noticed. Like you, you, can, you can read scripture at them. You can preach at them. You can quote sermon things at them. And for some reason, that doesn't necessarily have a lot of effect on its own. But when we do our best to lovingly meet somebody's need through um, giving of our time, our energy, and our resources, uh, something remarkable actually happens. You establish an authority within that person's life that there's this voluntary respect, um, loving respect given. And, and we see this in families. Uh, most days, there are bad days sometimes, but like, like with your children or with your parents, you, you have a loving respect for them or they lovingly respect you because you've served them. You've served them in ways that haven't always been fun, that hasn't been something you necessarily wanted to do, but you saw that need and you served them. And this is how spiritual authority is given in people's lives, that we learn to respect and trust certain people, not because of a title they have, not because of their place in some organizational chart, but because they've served us in love. And serving people affects them. And again, this is about impact, influence, effect. And if there's somebody's life you want to see come to Christ, if you want to transform your community, it's going to happen through service. It's not really going to happen through much else. Think about your own, your own salvation. If, if you're a Christian, you probably didn't walk past a street preacher one day who was yelling, repent, you need to. And you didn't go, oh, tell me what must I do to, to give my life to Christ. No, you, you did hear the gospel. It's something that goes like this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so you heard the gospel in which God himself becomes a man, steps into creation to lovingly serve his creation. And you respond to that, how God served you when you were at your absolute worst. And if if you haven't accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, what I just read there, God did for you. That, That Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem, he drinks the cup of God's wrath towards sin. And scripture presents this idea. It's either he drinks it for us, we accept his work on our behalf, or we say, no, thank you, I'll drink the cup myself. And it doesn't end well. It's, it's eternal separation from God. It's called hell. And so if you want to talk about Christ as Lord and Savior, we'd love to talk to you more about that. Greg's available or myself after the service to talk about that. But Jesus, we understand, he doesn't parachute in from heaven as a, as a man, and go, I am God. Listen to me, obey me, 
do what I say. No, he, he comes into creation. He's born as a baby. He lives this humble life, 30 years almost just doing a regular blue-collar job. Then he starts this short three-year ministry. But through that, he was the suffering servant. He accomplished our salvation. And so if anybody ever deserved to be served, it was Jesus. But what does Jesus say in verse 27? Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what we're going to find in the kingdom of God is that the chief throne has actually been reserved for the chief servant. It's going to be revealed that it's the king himself who has actually served us the most. And so our goal as disciples, we're not trying to convince people, look how great I am. My goal as a disciple is to say, look how good God is through serving other people in his name. And because what Christ has done for us, if we're a disciple, there's nothing that is too far below us to do when it comes to helping somebody reach salvation. If, if we go, if we go like, I, I'm, I'm above that. I'm too important to do that. I could never descend to that level. Jesus is saying, you are not nearly as important as you think you are. And the beauty of Jesus' teaching here is that any one of us can be great in his kingdom because it's not about our gifts, our talents, our titles, our position. Um, it's not about how many people serve us, but it's about how many people we have served. And that is entirely up to us.